Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Topical Reflections on Music. Today I have a very special guest with us, Mr. Salvatore Corrente. He is a piano technician and piano tuner with over 40 years of experience working since 1979. He is based in Montreal and uh, this will be a first for this podcast. Uh, Salvatore has not seen the questions in advance. So uh, it will be uh, it will be a special first, uh, a bit more uh, informal between the two of us. And uh, welcome, Salvatore. Yes, hello. Welcome to you too. The inner workings of the piano remain a mystery, not only to the larger public, but also to many pianists. We all learned about uh, Bartolomeo Cristofori, who is frequently credited for replacing the plucking mechanism with a hammer. But the later developments are shrouded in mystery. As an organist, I'm aware that organ builder Silberman improved on Cristofori's design, but I remain unclear how. Can you please walk us through some of the developments of piano mechanics and explain in an accessible way some of the most important technical contributions of famous builders. Please note that the people listening to us are not necessarily professional musicians. Obviously not. So, thank you in advance. So, if you go back and think of Cristofori, his action was a bit crude, but it worked because it was simple. He had replaced, like you said, the quill to a hammer, and he put the invention of what we call the escapement is a, it's a jack and escapement, so it releases and there's a back check. He, he made the three most important parts to function properly. But later on, let's say after 100, 200 years, all this was improved by other makers, other German and Italian, so on. So it's just the basics was that. And of course, the strings were also upgraded and the frame and everything, everything was improved, but it took many years and many, many years of trial and error to get to the, today's perfection, and still we're trying to get it perfect. What is the last uh, important technical innovation that is still in use today? Uh, that, from what I heard, well, if you've all known or heard of Fazioli, they invented something called uh, a touchless or free contact jack contact to from the jack to the knuckle by using magnets so there's no actual contact there's no friction there's no noise and so everything is quiet quick and fast that's one of the most really radical ideas and it there's more but that's one that's really amazed me because they eliminated the friction and that's what pro a lot of problem actions any action regardless upright or grand you always have direct contact and friction with all the parts. And to make everything work smooth, you need good materials. And even they say, well, can you use lubricants? Well, the only lubricant you can use in an action is probably what we call a white powder Teflon. Uh, Teflon, basically, it's a white Teflon and it's powder and it just makes everything smoother. But that's about it, you know, so... There's more to come. Yes, there's, there's a lot of innovations. Even pianos that are now, we've heard of 80, 85 keys, 88 keys. Now there's 97, Bosendorfer, Imperial. You know that's been years of that. 
and why i'll tell you after okay uh there's also one piano that's amazed me also is an australian maker called steward and sons they make a piano which this keyboard is 108 notes uh, adding to which register the top register or both the ends okay. both ends so i don't know i haven't seen it in person but i read the article i've seen the pictures and the piano sounds different it, it's just magical how it vibrates all the sound because it creates more ambiance obviously by having a larger soundboard because now we have a larger soundboard longer piano and so it creates a different transformation of vibrations it must be gigantic how long is it it's probably around 11 feet and wow. I, and also Borgato, uh, Mr. Luigi Borgato has built a piano a, a, according to that similar right size, but he's done something different. He's done uh, something even more radical, which is what he did is he added an extra string like Bluchner, but except this string actually functions as a struck string because it's actually struck. It's actually four strings on the top register, which is the last 45 notes from F to the last C. And it's actual four notes, four strings What's per this? note. Okay. So instead of three. So it makes it for louder and stronger sound. But the question here that in my mind for me is already, it must be a challenge to tune because already three notes we know already it's a challenge. When you add the fourth one, much harder and much more harder to keep it stable. So, but I'm sure the piano, and the piano is just beautiful. It's just gorgeous in, in every sense. But... Remind, uh, uh, remind us of the piano manufacturer of this piano with the four strings. That's Borgato, Irish. Luigi okay. Borgato. And he started this not long ago. It's around year 2000, I think. He's not, and he only makes about two pianos, one to two pianos a year. It's all handmade. Mm -hmm. Everything is handmade. It's a small company. It's his own. Uh, he's actually the engineer, musician, a pilot. Uh, wow. He's a bit of everything. And uh, he has his friendly dog is with him. I don't know if he still has him. His German Shepherd. That's his his personal sidekick. You know, his his real. He's muse too. Yeah, he, sure. without him, nothing functions. You know, and so it's good. I like that. And and but he's came up with a some very a lot of good ideas based on what Fazioli did, but a few steps above. So everybody's always coming up with something, and also he uses doesn't use plastic keys for the whites. He uses what we call bone which is a basically animal bone it's a there's a there's a word for it. there's an animal for it but it doesn't matter instead of using ivory he uses that natural material which simulates ivory mm -hmm. and it's okay it's fine it's just another little feature but it's fine it's okay well as long as it's not plastic i think everyone can get behind this that uh... yeah plastic doesn't thrill me but it's it's affordable and it's easier to, to repair but bone when it's bone it's if it chips it's harder to repair i admit that as a pianist uh, i don't feel very solid playing on uh, plastic because uh, it saglisse uh, beaucoup that's exactly yes. the reason how do you say it in english like glisse it, it slides uh, it's, it's, slip it's slippery yeah it's plastic slippery. is so very slippery after yeah. about 15 20 minutes of yeah. me playing like it, yeah. it doesn't feel as stable it yeah. feels slippery so yeah. uh, a bone I can I can always get behind. Uh, I grew up playing on an ivory key piano. I yeah. still have it. And and me too. That's what I started in many years, and I had that. And and I we all noticed that when you play on ivory, you actually feel the grip, you feel the contact with the yeah. key, so it helps, not missing your shot. Uh, I heard of a funny story. One of my colleagues, actually my mentor, he told me he worked for, uh, Rubenstein. He did 
tuned the piano for Rubinstein and many other famous artists. And once Rubinstein, what he used to do is he used to go behind the stage when after the technician would leave and he would bring his little sandpaper and sand the ivories a little bit to make them rougher. Okay. So that wow. he have even better contact. So he had these little tricks, you know. So everyone does these things, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure you've given ideas of many a pianist now. Look, we just talked about innovations. Yeah. But how about original elements of piano mechanics in general use today? Like I read in, in my preparation for our encounter that mm. the repetition mechanism by Sébastien Erard, Erard native yeah. of three, has yeah. survived to the present day. Yeah. He's... Now, is there something else in the pianos that we use today that has still survived the test of time? Yeah, see, Erard, what he invented and created was the, called the double spring escape, uh, double repetition. The double repetition with that special little spring between whipping and jack, without that, there's no function, there's no use. The piano is mm -hmm. useless. Okay. So, and it's very critical. And what he did is he created this invention, he did it. But it's very hard to fine-tune. A lot of people have, there's two kinds of spring tension on these pianos. One is the type that we actually, Steinway came up, used it also, but they use what we call the bending system, which is you have a special tool and you actually decrease or increase the tension of, of the spring. But it's very hard to do precisely evenly. So Erard came up, actually, he's probably the one who did it because he came up with the screw system also. There's a screw which controls it much easier. It's much more direct and it's more precise and it's more stable. And that's the one I usually prefer anyway. It's, those are the three key elements you need that. If you don't have that, that bending technique, no matter how good you do it or how well you know how to do it, you're always gonna repeat it. It doesn't happen right away, it changes. Mm -hmm. okay. It changes constantly, even sometimes with temperature, believe it or not, just the fact that it gets cold and it gets hot there is the metal in the piano reacts much quicker than the wood so whether it's the strings the pins the plate anything that's metal will react so if a piano is subjected to cold temperatures air conditioning or low temperatures in the house that changes everything very important to know that yes now uh there are some uh, people who install humidifiers in their yeah in their apartments is this something that you recommend the only thing that really works and people have tried all kinds it's to humidify the room okay. you can put there's what we call they call them damp chasers i've installed many also myself but they also have to be properly installed and they have to be properly maintained so if you don't follow those guidelines it's all useless you're back to square one so the key element is to have the room actually humidified to at least minimum what we call 40. And ideally, the ideal humidity is 42. But if you keep it at 40, even at 38, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Anything under 30, I did, as a matter of fact, speaking of humidity, I just tuned the piano yesterday, which I didn't want. I walked in the room and the machine is there, the dial, and it says 22 humidity. I go, I said to myself, this has got to be... The craziest thing to do it's too dry it's impossible <laughs> well here uh, i have some information that tells me that uh, uh, fazioli talks between 30 and 70 percent and bersendorfer's official recommendation is between 40 and 60 percent that's too high <laughs> this is in, a, in an interview by thomas braukal 
technical and manufacturing director for Bösendorfer. How how uh, where where do you judge the forty two percent from? Well, the forty two has been before when they designed the dam chaser system. That's what they recommend. Mm -hmm. But forty two, like I said, it doesn't really matter too much if it's forty two if it's thirty nine. As long as the numbers are not too below and not too above, you can't exact. If you go extreme one level to the other, it, it doesn't help either. So that's why I'm saying if you can keep it at a constant, even if it's 39, it's still okay. It's safe. Okay. But anything under 35, to me, under 35 is critical. Okay. It starts to get critical. Well, we know <laughs> that 42 is the answer to the universe and everything. Yeah. So of, uh, of our generation know this. So that's yeah. an easy number to remember. Yeah. Uh, now um, you, you spoke about some amazing pianos done by hand, only two... Only two pianos done per year, etc. But uh, uh, the Victorian era saw the onset of mass-produced pianos. Yeah. They entered the home of middle class and relatively poor people for home use and entertainment. So what do we know about the business of piano maintenance from this era? Do we know something? And how did it affect the industry of piano making in general as it approached the modern era? That's an interesting question because I still think... I try to put myself in time sometimes and try to wonder how they worked those days and i see how the things were made even 100 150 years ago as a matter of fact i have old parts of old pianos around that age or even more and when they worked in those factories in those days they had no electricity they had really no light they worked with lamps oil lamps uh, windows basically everything they work near windows the most possible light they can get is from through a window and they still do today because it's the, the best way to work by natural light is the windows but you still need lighting because when you're doing fine work and you really want to see what you're doing when you're making bridges and you're doing pin blocks and you're installing hammers everything has to be very very precise so if, you, if your lighting is off those poor people must have had a really rough time and how they worked and in those conditions i don't know i'm, I'm amazed that they made it Pianos like that. <laughs> now, what is what is the average lifespan of a piano? Does it does it in in, in let's say in perfect conditions and good maintenance is is a, does a piano have a long time span? Is it getting longer with the new technologies? Or? No, not no? really. No, there's very few pianos that there's always the expression we always go back to. We always say it as a joke, but it's it's it's, it's also reality. They say there's Steinway and then there's everything else. Okay. So that by going by that expression is saying very few pianos are well made enough to last a long time yes but if they're if you maintain them they could last but some pianos no matter how you maintain them will not last it's just a fact of life it's like it, it has to be renewable has to you have to buy new it's like buying a, it's like a car same thing with mm -hmm. a car so if it's too well made they're not going to sell enough you know that's it's part of the the economy the wheel you know <laughs> Well, uh, talking about Steinway, they made the giant square pianos in the end of the 19th century, right. 250% larger than the first ones. So the square pianos posed a particular challenge. Yeah, there was very beautiful, ornate, yeah. piece of furniture. Yeah. Um, now, uh, design and size are great, but uh, remain a simple curiosity. So why did they fall off the... Well, what happened is they knew, they found... They, well, before the piano actually was invented, we go back to Cristofori, the design of the piano had a certain shape. And Cristofori had a little bit 
he was almost on the right track. He was in a way, but they hadn't figured it out after maybe 100 or 200 years. The only person who came up with the right solution for what the shape of the piano was, was John Broadwood, which he started his company in 1728. So before he made grands, anyway, he made squares also, and he made small apartments, and he, and he made many models, and made all kinds of, the name, the lists go on, if you check in the books and archives, they call them boudoirs, parlor, and whatever, because they were of the, the sizes. But what he did, he found out, he discovered two things. He invented what we call the hammer line, which mm -hmm. is the striking point where the hammer has to hit the string exactly. Mathematically, he figured it out It's one, a ninth of the, the length of the string. All right. ninth, length, nine tenths of the length of the string. So he figured it out exactly from the highest note to the lowest note. But he also figured out, you now we're working with a square. So he looked at the whole thing and he says, no, this is not right. So he thought of it. Why not put the strings in this position? So he made the piano, the strings follow forward. Mm -hmm. And that changed the whole factor. And that's what made the piano much better. So he was there already. That was the biggest improvement. So everybody followed that route. And that's one. by around that time was about the same time as because everybody was making square pianos. There were no grand pianos yet. Mm -hmm. Grand. The first grand piano was probably made around as early as 1853. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't still perfected yet. And I actually had worked on one, which is the first American grand piano by Sommer. It was a German-made name anyway. And it was called Sommer. And it had a, the bend, the curve was on both sides of the piano. Ah, okay. Yeah. And I actually had worked on one of those. And I saw, I saw the pictures and I actually had my hands. I had one in my hands and I actually had the privilege but, to but, work but on it. But why would the curve be on both sides? It's the way they designed it and it worked. And the piano was sounded very nice. It was only okay. five foot four and it was very elegant looking, beautiful. So it would look beautiful on both sides. All right. And it sounded very nice for the size of piano that it was. So by that time they realized, the and going back to the square piano, the, the whole piano was really made backwards it was really primitive the 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 system was very very low tech there was no fine tuning on anything and every, everything was very difficult to work on mm -hmm. i've worked on a lot of those and i've done a lot of only only the steinways were actually very good at what they did they made them a little bit better but still difficult so action wise and tuning wise they were very difficult and they wouldn't stay in tune forever they weren't made and the soundboards were very small actually the piano was big but the soundboard in there was very small and very thin so it didn't carry the sound it didn't have the power no and not not a prof not a professional research reference but a, a colleague of mine told me that the design of those earlier early square pianos was inspired by the clavichord yeah True? because because they yeah. didn't have anything else to work with so they didn't yeah. know yet how this did nobody knew and mm -hmm. could perceive what does the piano actually going to look like eventually but until they realized that they couldn't go any further this piano had no power no dynamics really it, it couldn't do much with it it didn't have enough range so they had to redesign it that's why broadwood mm -hmm. came up with that idea and then from there everybody saw and a company called decker also in the states made the, they were the first ones to make bent rims what we call continuous bent rim okay and what that was this? that was that was another key element that really helped because most pianos back in the day even though they looked like one piece they weren't <laughs> all right it was a joint there was a joint but steinway had a, um, a technique that they used they were one of the best at it actually 
they could make a piano look like one piece, but there were joints, and you couldn't even see the joints how well they were made. Okay. From the from it was called it was actually called sectional piano. It had actually side, the front curve, this bend, and the other one. It's four actually four four parts. Okay. And it was glued together. Mm -hmm. But the way they did it, and I actually had a piano like that from another company. And I had worked on one of those and I've seen it. And it's interesting because instead of doing the, because it's much easier to build and faster. Mm -hmm. But the bent rim, what helps by that is by once it's all one uni, one uni body, it's much stronger, more rigid. So the whole thing becomes one. So once everything is put together with that, you have a much stronger case, soundboard, everything is tighter. Everything's like a drum, well tuned in there. And now, that's, are they now one piece? Like the piano I'm looking at now. Yeah. Is it one piece? Yeah, that's one continuous okay. one continuous, one continuous piece. piece. It's All bent right. on a mold, and that's it. Once it's put, that thing you can't bend it, you can't break it. It's much harder, much stronger. How do you bend it then in a shape when it's? They have a mold. They have a. Uh, they have big blocks mm -hmm. with clamps. It's very interesting to see. You should see. Go on the Steinway sites. They'll show you how they do it, and it's a very interesting. It takes them about 15, 20 minutes to do a a bent rim. Really. I would, I would think it like takes, the wood would, would take much longer the, to bend. It's actually, the wood is maple layers. That's about, depends on how, what size of the piano is. You know, mm -hmm. we have different thicknesses. And it's and what Steinway did also, which improved more than every everybody, they used, because you have actually two rims. You have an outer rim and you have an inner rim. All right. They're, they were able to do the two rims together in one shot. In the and, same mold? In the same mold. All right. The reason for that was that when you do that, you create a much tighter fit. Mm -hmm. Everything is much uniform. And most companies tend to use the separate system. And that's why some pianos, they come apart. The rims come apart. The outer comes apart. Because if you don't glue them together in one shot, it's not the same thing. Steinway figured this out a long time ago. They knew it already. And they came up with, that was a much harder mold to make. But once you had it, you can never go wrong. Now going away, uh, going away from the mode, uh, I'm sure many many uh, people, um, music lovers, but also pianists, ask themselves the question of how many pedals does a piano have and why. So uh, I have seen pictures of pianos even with four pedals. I've yeah. never played on one, yeah. but the middle the middle pedal on pianos with three pedals can yeah. actually be different. Um, on a, on an upright, it yeah, would be like the, the, a surdine. Yeah, so yeah. so how 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 is this decided? What do the pedals do? And... Well, what they did first originally in the early days, there were no pedals. Mm -hmm. And the piano forties, like Cristofori, and Bach's days, they never had pedals. So then that was the story. So the first time when they made the first piano, they used one pedal. But then somebody came up with an idea, says, well, you know, one pedal, it does only this. Let's see if we can add something else to make it interesting. So they added another trick to it, which was the shift. Mm -hmm. The keyboard would shift. So now the hammers move over to the side and you're playing two strings rather than three. You're eliminating the string. So it creates a softer, lighter sound. So it changes the color, the tone of the music. And it's one of my favorite pedals, actually. It's, and it's an easy one to work with. The middle pedal going back, then they added the third one. That's why most days, in the early days, you only needed two pedals. It did the work. It didn't need more than that. But then somebody came up with another idea. Said, mm. They wrote pieces of music that needed another creation. And they needed what we call a sustenuto. It's called a sustenuto, meaning 
if you play that note and you push the pedal at the same time, that note will hold as long as possible while you're playing something else and creating another effect. When much was more this difficult. Pedal introduced uh, approximately? I, I'm not sure exactly, right. but probably the early 1900s, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. Late, late, early, early 1900s, maybe 1895 or so at the earliest. But it's a pedal that's rarely used and not too many people use it and know how to use it because it's very difficult to work with. I've tried practicing with it to myself, doing things, and it's fun to use, but it's only good when you're playing the lower notes because those strings and the bass carry longer. So you can create a background ambiance while you're playing other things with the middle or the top end. So, but there are a few pieces of music, I don't know which ones exactly, but some pieces of classical music require that pedal. Now going to the fourth pedal, Fazioli came up with the fourth pedal. That fourth pedal, what it does is actually raises the hammers. There's a special rail that raises the hammers closer to the strings, mm -hmm. which give it another soft pedal effect, All right. which gives it a, cl a closer impact. So the impact is shorter, and so the blow distance, less time, but less stronger. So you have two shifts, actually, two soft pedals. So now you have a left, and you have the other fourth one, which create... So you can use them, you can't use them together, it's kind of hard, so you have to use one or the other. All right. Because when you're working, you only have two mm -hmm. feet, so you can only use, you know, two, 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 and two, and you choose your combination how you want, you know. <laughs> now, moving, uh, moving away from the actual piano itself, uh, uh, about piano tuning a bit more uh, specifically, yeah. so uh, it was done entirely by year. Right. But in the 21st century, now piano tuners have access to a wide variety of software. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I discovered what AccuTuner is, a standalone device, yeah. CyberTuner software, which can help with 57 historical temperaments. One can create one's own as well. So uh, what what softwares exist and how do technological advancements uh, it's... affect training? Okay, I've, I've, I've tried all those things and I find them all interesting, but the actual, the only tuning for me, like, okay, I use it, I use a basic tuner. I don't even use it half the time. I just turn it on. Sometimes I'll just tune the string first and then I'll turn the machine on just to see <laughs> where my to ear is. Verify, yes. <laughs> and usually I'm pretty well right. But like I said, more or less so i play with that factor but that's that's another story that's me but the the problem with the tuning and machines they're only good there they're, they're meant to be used and nobody really does it anyway they're supposed to be used as an extra aid so if you're stuck on a certain note or pitch you can use it as a reference but your ear is your final judge so if it sounds right to you or it's because you, you're playing, well, basically a tuning is your stretch tuning. So you go from your A and you make sure that the next A to the next A and every note in between is stretched out nicely so that the, the waves, the beats are very clean. And that's what you want. So what these machines do, what they do is they program them so that, yes, theoretically, this note should be raised to this pitch. But people don't understand that every piano reacts differently. Mm-hmm regardless the make and regardless how many models of the same let's say you have a program for this model difference of hammers difference of strings difference of the, how the rim difference and how the rim and the body everything was glued together every piano it's like it's an individual fingerprint 
It's like a violin. There's no two violins that will sound the same. So when you're tuning, you have to understand the fundamental. What are you listening for? What is the best place for this piano to be set at? So you have to be able to be the judge and say, it sounds good like this or it doesn't sound good. You can try, like when the early days when I started, I started tuning and say, oh, you have to tune at 440. I said, okay, I started that. I had my friend teach me a bit. I understood a bit, but he, he tuned it, tuned my piano once and I tried it. He did it all by ear, and, but at the time he was losing his hearing a bit. He, he wasn't, but I wasn't fussy too much. But I, so I checked it on the computer with the AccuTuner. I said, oh, yeah, it's pretty close, but some notes were just a little bit, you know, in a different range, a little bit, but not critical. So I said, I got to try something different. I don't like this piano at 440. Mm -hmm. So I decided to, let's tune it at 441. I want to bring it up a bit more. This was a piano that was an older piano, a 1924 model, which was all rest restored, new strings, new pin block. So I said, let's see if I can get it any better. Let's see what happens. So I tried it at 441. And a trick I learned as I was tuning, I stopped when I got to the high end. I didn't use the machine. I just used it for the first octave or so. And I used everything by ear. But when I got to the top, I was listening with my ear and brought even higher than it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So the scale goes like, starts off like this in a straight line. And as you go to here, it starts going up the curve. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want. You want it higher. You want to go almost... It's hard to explain it in numbers. You, you'll, you'll hear it when it hits in your ear. It goes, it's there and go, oh, that's it. It's perfect. So I tried that. Piano sounded great. I go, oh, it sounds actually much better than before. So I explained that to my my colleague, my friend. And I said, I did this. And I and, and is that what I'm supposed to do when I get to there? He says, yeah, exactly that. That's what you have to do. You have to use your ear because your ear, our ears perceive sound in a different way. Then the machine, a machine could tell you the right register, theoretically, mathematically. Mm -hmm. But to the ear, it's a perception of an illusion. You understand? So to make it sound right to that, to match everything else, you have to go higher in the last octaves. All right. The last two octaves, you have to go much higher. You could almost, if this is a C, that could be almost a C sharp. Mm -hmm. But if you... If you tune everything properly, when you do the right proper temperament and you do that, the, especially on a concert grand, it, it sounds just beautiful. It, it really sounds much stronger, brighter, richer. Everything is just alive. Now you talked about your uh, a friend who is, was also your teacher. Um, many of our listeners don't know how, uh, how learning the trade works. Now, is it still an apprenticeship? system how did you learn it's, the trade and... yeah a bit of both what i the way i started was a bit funny because at, at the beginning i was well when i was very young actually i started before i started on the piano because i didn't play piano till i was later i started as a kid maybe i was 10 11 years old my my parents introduced me to music so my first instrument was the accordion mm -hmm. that was my first instrument and so i learned playing that and i went to school and i studied and i learned how to read music but at the same time, when I was playing my accordion, I would play from the books and the sheets and I would memorize all these things and I'd learn it. And then I, and then I would start improvising, doing things. But then I'd have the radio on or a record and for fun, I would just play along with it and I would find, oh, that's the key. Okay, so I have the right key. So I would learn a lot of the songs by ear, just by picking up by ear. So having that, so I had a good ear for picking up tunes, but I also had a good eye and a good ear. I would hear 
a lot of things. Even my accordion wasn't perfectly tuned, I noticed after I checked it, I tested it out. <laughs> so I tried to tune it myself. I did a few things. I've, I've, I've taken it apart, actually, and put it back together many times. <laughs> so those, those were the things I would experiment with when I was a kid. That's the best way to practice doing something. Yeah. But Take it uh, apart and build it over again. Yeah. And so by doing that, and then when I got the piano, I bought my own piano and I decided let's, I got to learn the trade. So I, st I knew already I could see what's broken, not working. And I learned how to do it, fix everything. And somebody taught me the basics and I just continued the rest. So I just improved on everything. So I, I tried to make everything better than it was. And the same thing with the tuning, the tuning. So I said to myself, and, and I'll always go back to that word tuning. When we do a temperament, I would wish I could show you, but we always start by the middle of the piano. You work your way to the treble, and then you work back to the bass. Mm -hmm. That's how it's supposed to be done. That's how it was always done. For the simple reason that that's the best way to keep the piano in balance so that it's evenly stretched out. And for the frame also, that you're not putting too much tension all on one side. With the new machines and the tuners, going back to that, the, the, new, the new people, what they're doing is they're using that... The reason they're using that is because a lot of them don't have a good ear and they're lazy. They don't want to, and it's much faster to tune by ear anyway, and just as precise or even better actually, because a lot of people notice it sounds better when you do it by ear. The machine, you start, they start with the A at the end, the first mm -hmm. one, the lowest note and work their way down. And that's the wrong way to start. That's the first, the first mistake. So anyone who tunes regardless with the machine or without a machine, you never start from the first note, from A1. You start from A in the middle, A440, and you work down. So we've always had discussions on even old colleagues, even colleagues that were so-so tuners or good tuners or bad tuners, it didn't matter. They all knew that you had to start in the middle and work that way. When they used to see these guys working with these machines, working from here, we always said it doesn't make sense. It's physically impossible. You can't tell me that this is going to be perfect by the time you get halfway here. Yeah, okay. It's not going to sound good, the piano. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just that for them, they're not tuning the piano. They're tuning the machine because they're just following what the machine tells them. They program. You, it's, it's, you can program it as good as you want or as good as you think it's going to work. But like I said, the piano will react differently. So if it says this pitch and you're following the machine the machine may be you might be close but it might not be right exactly still <laughs> yeah now you mentioned uh, uh, taking apart uh, accordion and piano you have also built your own pianos from what i know well at least rebuilt i built rebuilt many pianos now a what lot. what uh, what uh, what research what experiments do you conduct what do you learn by doing this and have you well you learn what have you discovered well you learn a lot from working on doesn't matter what piano you take apart you learn how they did it first of all because once you take it apart you see how they put it together and you see sometimes it's well made and it's that's the way it should be that's the way it's going to be but some pianos you can take them apart and say okay you know what i think i can improve it here a bit there's something i can do more here i could put we can put better materials we can do better fittings you know there's a lot of things we can improve and i learned a lot mostly from steinway steinway is a mystery piano company and i won't tell you their secret because there is a secret that nobody knows it's when they install their soundboard all right they have they they have all the tricks in the book that's why they came out number one 
Now you have you have uh, taken classes. You have uh, gone. To I've been to seminars. Yeah. Seminars, yes. But a lot of that is you can't always absorb everything and understand everything because some of these professors or or these so-called other technicians, they're ahead of us. They're a, a lot advanced. Some of them and ahead of us, and they've done good work. And the thing is, they try to explain it, but sometimes they explain it in a way that you don't really understand fully. You understand, but sometimes it just makes it more complicated. So all you got to do is understand, okay, I need to do this, and I got to get to this point. That's all I have to do. Mm -hmm. How you do it, because we don't all have the same shop setups, we don't all have the same tools, as long as the results are good in the end, doesn't really matter. Now, you have invented your own tools. Uh, you have shown me your inventions. Well, now, can you, for our listeners, you cannot obviously show, yeah. but you can tell us yeah. what uh, what provoked you to go this path? You uh, What practical well, problems did you solve? And well, can you describe some of your tools? Yeah, what I did is, a, some of them are very easy to do and basic. What I did is, I have tools that are basically made of exotic wood. A lot of the handles are made of very exotic wood. It's wood that I've had and collected, and I didn't know what to do with it. And finally, I said, I got to do something with it. And so I said, what other better use can I use it for? But, you know, tools for my, my piano, like tuning hammers. I made tuning hammers. I even found different fittings and shafts and connections and all kinds. So I said, it's nice to work with. I like wood because it, it has grip. It has look and grip. And when you're working on a piano, it makes more sense. You know, I'm not working on a car. If I'm working on a car... I can use any cheap screwdriver, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I hope my garagist doesn't listen to this because, you know, he probably won't be... Won't I, won't, I won't use one of my tools that'll work on my car. But, you know, I have good plastic handle tools. I have some very good ones some, and some very favorites that I, I found that by luck because they're quality tools. But I still prefer my wooden handles. And my tuning hammer is the same thing. And, and my hammers, I've changed... You know, I've taken off hickory handles and put ebony handles. Why not? Because I have it. <laughs> uh, you have... Um, th th this, this podcast has a special uh, focus on ethics. Um, can you tell us what uh, ethical business practices are in, uh, in your field? And uh, how do you maintain them? Especially as a small business owner, you work for yourself. You That's don't it. work for a, for a large manufacturer. So... Yeah. This will be a very interesting um, thing to, to, to discuss, to, to tell to our listeners. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that one. It's a difficult question. <laughs> All right. But how about, how about I turn it around? What is a clearly unethical practice? Unethical? In, in your field. Well, there's a lot of unethical things. It's just, I don't do them. I don't know what you would consider unethical. <laughs> Uh, I ask the same question to every uh, to every guest, and I'm always happy to hear how differently everyone answers the question. Uh, and uh, I can testify that uh, Salvatore is an extremely honest person, so I'm not surprised he doesn't know any unethical practices. He's unable to conceive them. Uh, now, in conclusion, mm -hmm. uh, I uh, I wish to uh, have a question that is specifically directed to. Uh, Piano owners um, who, you know, would take piano lessons, they have children, they have a piano in their house. What are the most frequent questions you receive from your clients? And if you feel comfortable, uh, can you offer us your best advice for healthy piano maintenance? Well, 
first you gotta you gotta get the piano tuned often enough at least once maybe twice a year if possible depending on how you play how much you play not everybody can afford to get it twice a year okay so if you want you can always make an arrangement with your tuner if he's if he agrees to say i'll give you a deal if you do it three times two times that's mm -hmm. uh, that's up to them but it's not just tuning the piano the strings is you got to check everything the piano has to be inspected visually every time the tuner comes he has to check the screws in the plate that's the first thing that has to be done mechanically the action if it's cleaned if there's stuff that has fallen inside you don't know pencils you find pencils you find clips you find guitar picks i found you know keys in there so it's good to open it up and just see what you can debris you can get out and unlock the piano so that it's playable and it doesn't damage anything and you know keep the keep it clean keep it away from heaters away from my heavy drafts and you know keep the keys clean you know they have to be washed you need all you need is a damp cloth with a bit of water that's it no other magic solution all right <laughs> that's it just the keys the rest inside it's better let the piano technician take care of it we have the tools for cleaning we have brushes special tools to go under the soundboards with the cloth to clean the dust on the soundboards or clean the strings we don't recommend anybody put their hands on the strings especially the bass strings bass strings can oxidize very quickly from the sweat on your hands everybody has different ph level mm -hmm. bass strings are the worst thing to touch <laughs> do you feel comfortable sharing your phone number with our listeners so that if they need a piano tuner they can call you if they want i can give it if you yes, want it's, please go ahead it's 514-235-5835 thank you very much uh, dear salvatore for so kindly agreeing to this interview and uh, dear listeners this was the first interview where my guests did not have the questions in advance, but uh, I, uh, I know how uh, the, the large culture general of Salvatore, who is uh, always so at ease and happy to explain his trades uh, to everyone interested. Thank you again, Salvatore. Thank, thank you, Alexandra. <laughs> and uh, you all have a wonderful rest of the day and until next time.